had some preaching. That is a lovely couple, if you don't know who they are. The backstory of them, they're husband and wife, and if you'll notice that she was pregnant expecting. She was a lesbian who hated God and the church, and God gloriously saved her, and she met this particular man, and they've gotten married, and I think you'd agree they are gifted in the way they can write out theology like that. Adam and Eve will never be the same for me again, having watched that many, many times. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to spend this Sunday and next trying to get through five verses. (laughs) I have been a pastor for close to 20 years. I don't think I have ever labored like I have in the last number of weeks over this passage. And not because I don't know what I believe the Bible says. That's not what I labored over. It wasn't that I labored over the idea of being able to explain it to anybody. What I labored over was the gravity of the situation in which we find ourselves in, in the culture and in the world, even in the church. I labored over being able to, with passion and excitement, preach this passage so that you are caught up in the goodness of it and not the controversy of it. I wanted us to be overwhelmed by God's design for His creation, especially His creation that bears His image being man and woman. So I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Today, for our friends and visitors, we are walking through the pastoral epistles. That's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These are letters written from Paul or by Paul under the inspiration of God, never forget that, to two individuals, one being Timothy and one being Titus. They were sent to two different churches. Timothy, and this one here we're looking at, was sent to the church at Ephesus, which was uh, uh, probably a conglomerate of churches, house churches and others, in the city of Ephesus. The other, Titus, was sent to the Isle of Crete, and he was to preach and bring God's order, God's will, God's design for the church to the people there and the church there. And so what I've been wrestling with as someone who is in his 43rd year of life who's been around church all of his life, been around Christ and Christianity since I was five years old. My parents came to faith when I was five. I was raised in Sunday school and youth group, did all the things, have all the awards, all the trophies. A one on me went right to the meritorious award. I hold them all. In some cases, records, or at least in my little world, all right? But what does it mean to be the church? Again, I'm going to say it and say it and say it. We didn't come to the church. This is just a building. We gathered as the church. The people are the church. And so we gathered as the church. And in this particular passage, I have to be honest, we're going to look at today and next Sunday God's design for His daughters in His church. One of the things I love to do with the ladies of our church, the ladies in my life, the ladies that I get to know and the joy of getting to know them is to remind them over and over again 
that they are special, not because of their physical appearance, but because of their creator. And when you are a child of God, you are a daughter of God. One of the great things about Facebook, and yes, I said a great thing and Facebook in the same sentence. That's not always an oxymoron, okay? Is the fact that they let you know about birthdays. And I love it when I see those little birthday notifications up in the corner, right-hand corner of my computer screen. And I love to write out birthday greetings to people and remind them to count their blessings, but to remind them that they are a son or a daughter of God. And God has a design for us. And so we're going to look at God's design for his daughters in his church. So we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. And again, I want you to be honest because I want you to do a, a, a social study of yourself, all right? Really be honest about how you react to these words, whether you understand them, whether you like them, how much that you've been affected by your world and your culture and how you think of them. This is what I labored under. I labored under the weight of not just being able to teach this to you or find a way to preach it to you, but a way to make our church, us, understand together there is incredible joy in following God, even if it singles us out a little bit with the culture. All right? So here's what Paul says. Paul, under the inspiration of God, so these are the words of God, the words of God, Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, if you're like me, I thought to myself as I read this, Paul, that's a great way to win friends and influence people. And then it gets worse, at least from perspective of reading it. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, even words like these, all right, that make us all a little bit uncomfortable. Let's be honest. Today, we are going to continue on a very practical journey. Make no bones about it. This is a practical journey into the Word of God. And we've been called to study God's Word. We've been called to know God's Word because we want to know the mind of God. We want to be a people that know the will of God. How does God want us to live and function together as men and women? And as I've said already, I want to be completely honest and transparent. I almost, a couple of times this week, said, Lord, I thought I was getting a cold. And I thought, Lord, that would be awesome if I could get a really bad flu and ask Steve Dar or someone to preach for me this Sunday and even give him the passage and say, here, would you take this passage for me? Because it's way easier to be an armchair quarterback than to be up here. Okay, let me just tell you. I looked for things. I, I, I showed you that video we showed you. I, I met with Daniel. I met with Steve many times and the other guys. I've literally looked at hundreds of videos read hundreds of blog posts and journal articles and commentaries and books. I was trying to find a way to start this series of sermons a little bit funny, a little bit lighter, a little, you know, with a little bit of humor, because I know how sober it was all going to get pretty quickly. And you know what? Everywhere I looked, 
for videos or jokes or funny stories or anything, the subject was e either contentious, the subject matter made uh, the butt end of stereotypical jokes or humor, depending on the particular sex you wanted to make fun of, and without realizing it, much of the humor that I was reading simply fed the cultural bias against gender, against the idea that men and women are different and for good reason. And yet, I have to be honest, that the Holy Spirit knows what He's doing far better than I or even us collectively, because could there really be a better time in human history for us as a church to be dealing with this type of subject? Because you have to have been living inside of a glass dome not to know what your culture is dealing with today uh, before today or this last couple of months you might never have heard the word transgender now it's everywhere and we are celebrating it we are applauding it we have transgender issues in the public eye along with homosexuality the role of men and women not only the role of men and women but the role of men and women in the workplace in sports and at home we live in a culture that seems to be upside down with the whole idea of sexuality we live in a world that doesn't seem to know its way with the idea of marriage or committed love we throw out the word love so flippantly it's one of my big beefs with the english language I can say to my wife, I love you, Debbie. And then I can be with Paul and James yesterday, and he lets me ride his little mini bike, and I can say, I love this. That seems rather shallow, doesn't it? You've only got one word for love. I love ice cream, and I love my wife. And I hope she figures out which one means more important to me, right? Like, I mean, really, like we, we struggle with words. We struggle with the meanings of words and all these things how men and women are to relate to each other, and how we see God in all of this. These are the pressing issues of our culture. For all of you that are parents, these are the pressing issues that your children are dealing with every day. In every television show, at school, in the classrooms, on the playground, on Facebook, everywhere. And if we don't know what God says about men and women, the world will certainly teach our children. And it doesn't matter to them if it's what God wants or not. So today, we're going to be forced to make decisions about what this passage says. And we're going to be forced to admit either this is God's word and we must seek to understand it and apply it, or we're going to have to come to some other conclusion. And trust me when I tell you, there's lots of other conclusions out there. Some people approach 1 Timothy chapter 2 and they will say, well, it's God's word, but what it said is not what it means. Many people, you will read articles and books, entire denominations and churches are set up this way. Some will say, Paul was only speaking to a first century audience and little to none of what is written is for us today because we're in the 21st century. Others are so bold to say, and I, I met one this week who looked me square in the face and said, no, no, Paul got it wrong. Paul was just wrong. In fact, I had a dear friend look at me in the face today and say, well, Paul was a chauvinist, so I don't read Paul. And I thought, well, man, and that leaves out a lot of your Bible. <laughs> and then others will say, well, we must read and define this passage under the light of our culture and our time. But the problem with all of these approaches is that on some level, it puts you and I in charge of what the Bible says and not God in charge. That's inevitably where you end up. Whenever you take a position that, I'm now going to tell you what this means. 
we're playing God versus us coming and saying, no, Lord, this is your word. I bring my presuppositions and my sin and sometimes my own ideas and my own agenda. And so, Father God, teach me your way. Plus, there are some real dangers out out there in approaching a subject like this. Or I feel like there are some dangers in trying to preach a passage like this. With the cultural climate of today, to preach this passage as a pastor or to take a stand on this passage as a church is to risk being labeled. You will get name called if you land on a position. No matter what position it is, you will get labeled and put on a shelf that that's who you are. You might be called old-fashioned, If you take a position that says God has very specific roles for men and women, you can be called chauvinistic, pro-men, or worse, as promoting abuse. In all of the articles and books and things that I've read and watching and going through all the different videos and sermons, I could not believe the one thing, I love YouTube and hate it all at the same time. If I just watched YouTube and never scrolled down to see the comments, my life would be so much simpler. But because I scroll down to read the comments, I get... I vacillate between anger, fear, tragedy, and humor, okay, all at the same time. But people, if you take a position on something, my goodness, you are called everything. In fact, one pastor that I saw preach on this, on the comments on YouTube, his life was threatened. People told his wife to leave him, told his kids to get out of the house, all kinds of crazy stuff. I I guess I'm just too thin-skinned. I just need to stay away from social media. But we have to walk through this. And plus, they're straight up the problems in the church itself, the pitfalls we have. Because some people will say, if you take a, 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 a literal biblical approach to this, well, we're, we're trying to uh, advocate Victorianism, or what I call old-fashioned chivalry. That's not biblical manhood and womanhood, by the way. Western chivalry is Western chivalry. That doesn't mean it's biblical godhood, manhood or biblical womanhood. We need to be sure that we preach and apply what the Bible actually says and not some traditional stereotype. You see, being a man and being a woman is not what conservative values have to say. But what does God have to say? And let's be honest. I think we can all agree the whole thing is scary. So let's dig right in. All right. First Timothy chapter two. Verses 11 through 15. Well, we need to remember two things I've been talking about for weeks. We need to remember the principle of harmony. All right? The principle of harmony. What that means is, is whenever you read the Bible, the Bible never contradicts itself. All right? So the Bible is not going to say one thing over here and then contradict itself and tell you to do something else over here without explaining it. So people, if you've dealt with these subjects, someone will come to you, yeah, well, you know, the Old Testament says to stone rebellious kids. And I'm tempted sometimes sometimes I'm tempted, all right? But the reality is all of the rules, when you read in the Old Testament, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all the, thou shalt do this and don't do this and eat this and don't do this and sit for so many days and stand for so many days and go here and all the things, you got to remember that was the ceremonial law and it was all meant to point Israel and Israel was meant to be a, a nation of witnesses to the world that the, we can't live up to the perfection of Christ or God's holiness And when Jesus comes, he is the fulfillment of the law. And so the Bible will never contradict itself. The Bible will always walk you through a a command or a principle, and it's always harmonious. And in a big theological term, it's called the meta-narrative of Scripture, the big story of the Bible, all right? 
And then there's the principle of history. The principle of history. As you read your Bible, you will find from Genesis to Revelation and on through the church age, there's woven a history of how the church has interpreted and applied the Word of God. And you will be surprised at how consistent and accurate it is. You just have to be willing to do the work. Now, these are important because we've already seen them in 1 Timothy 2. We studied about praying, how men and women are to pray in the church. And we learned that praying in the church can take on different postures, right? Paul says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. And we learned that the lifting up of hands was not necessarily a chance uh, gender or chance cultural, all type thing. People have all kinds of postures of prayer. Some people lay down in prayer, some kneel, some bow their heads, some lift up hands in holy prayer. That was not the issue. That can be expressed in a variety of ways. But we do know the consistent principle in 1 Timothy 2 was that men were to pray from a heart of love and purity and holiness, free from anger and quarreling. That's non-negotiable. Whether you pray in Russia or you pray in St. John's, Newfoundland, where you pray in Jamaica or you pray in Upper Canada, wherever you pray, we are all to pray without anger and without quarreling with a heart of love and purity and good deeds. Our ladies, our sisters were told to pray in the church and not to make their appearance more important than their heart. Not to use your clothing or your jewelry, your possessions or your social standing as a means to kind of put yourself closer to God or to keep others further from Him. So that will show itself in a variety of ways. But the, but the principle of praying with humility, praying with godliness, praying together as a people no matter of your ethnicity or your social standing or your academics is everywhere in the world in the church of all ages. So we've done this as well. Now, I'm not going to lie. I don't know if you looked at it, if you write in your Bible, but there are some questions that might have come to mind in 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. All right? What does Paul mean when he says a woman must be quiet? Um, I have learned young in life never to look at just about anybody, quite honestly, and say, be quiet, except maybe a child. And even then, that doesn't always work. I mean, even Awana had the one, two, three, four, five count, right? So when Paul says, I want a woman to be quiet, I mean, I'm sorry, you've you got to have a question there. What does he mean, what, or what does submission mean? What does submission mean? Because there's nothing, none of us, unless you're into the UFC, none of you hear the word submission and go think, that's a good word. I just look to use that word in my life, submission. But unless you're into the UFC and know that's a way to win a fight, by submission, then you don't, you know, we don't really hear that word often in our culture and think warm and happy thoughts. What does permit mean? I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. What does he mean by the word permit? What does teach and exercise authority over a man mean? What does the whole Adam first and Eve second mean, and what does that have to do with us? It's one of the reasons why I showed you the video. I thought they did a great job of reenacting Adam and Eve for us. What does the woman was deceived and became a transgressor mean? And then above all, at least in my books, what does verse 15 mean? I mean, let's be honest. And you know what? Uh, You're allowed to laugh out loud, all right? Like, you know, join me in my struggle. Help me feel good. You know, there is a bit of humor in this, all right? It is amazing to me because it doesn't matter where you land on this issue. 
I have read literally probably 20 to 30 different commentaries. I've read at least five books cover to cover that are hundreds of pages. I can't tell you how many journal articles I've read, talked with different people and interviewed. And it doesn't matter where you fall on this issue. Commentators, men and women alike, will tell you that 1 Timothy 2.15 is one of the hardest verses in the Bible to understand. It's one of the hardest verses in the Bible to understand. And you're stuck with me trying to explain it to you. God has a sense of humor. All right? So all of these are there. But I want to summarize this whole passage, okay? I want you to realize, okay, big picture. As we zoom in on this, see the big picture. 1 Timothy was written really about personal integrity. All of 1 Timothy. We tend to break it up in those chapters and verses. You shouldn't. It's one letter. It's one letter. If, if you were away somewhere, some of you guys are from the States and some of you have traveled uh, from here to other places to study and you've had to be away from your family and you know if your family writes you a letter, they don't usually put it in chapter and verse form. They write you a letter and you read the letter in its entirety and the letter has flow to it. First Timothy is a letter, okay? It's a letter to Timothy who was being sent to a church and they were having leadership problems. And so it was about personal integrity. The way we conduct ourselves in corporate worship affects our spiritual capabilities, our church unity, and the perception of Christ by those outside the church. And I think every one of us would agree with that. If you've talked to anybody who's not saved or anybody who's been around the church for a little bit of time and disillusioned, and you go and talk to them and say, can I tell you about Jesus? They're likely going to say, yeah, I don't want anything to do with church. A lot of people say, I like Jesus, I just can't stand church. There's books written like that. I love Jesus, but not the church. Now, what tragically is you can't love Jesus without the church. That's like saying, I love women, but not marriage. That's just wrong. The way a man loves a woman is through the institution of marriage. That's how God put it and planned it. The way a Christian can love Jesus is through the church. But the reality is, if we're not unified, if we're not together, if we're not treating each other the way we should, if we're not pursuing Christ the way we should, if we're not making the word of God important the way it should, the reality is there's an awful lot of not just hypocrisy, because there's hypocrisy in every church, but it's when we deny that there's hypocrisy that the world gets ticked off. When we act like we've got it all together and we know we don't. If you've studied, right, how many of you have ever watched 19 Kids and Counting? Now, you be honest. 19 Kids and Counting. How many? Put your hands up, right? How many of you have heard of the Duggars? All right? You heard, uh, you know, the, the issue with the Duggars, if, if you haven't been watching popular culture, this is a Christian family that have had 19 children. All right? Think about that all you want. Um, or maybe you shouldn't think about that at all. Uh, but they have, have really been made famous because they have these wholesome Christian values. They're this lovely church. They play together. They sing together. They do all these things together. And it just got exposed in the last couple of weeks that the oldest son did some things when he was a young teenage boy and molested some of his sisters and one other girl, a babysitter. Well, social media has had a great, great time with this. Now, am, I am not in any way endorsing this because, one, I don't think any family should get on television and rub it in the world's face and saying, look how much we love Jesus and God's on our side, all right? Because here's the problem with that. We all know what hypocrites we are. But when you act like you got it all together and then people see your faults and then you're like, oh, no, but cut me some slack, 
Well, should it be any shock when the world says, cut you some slack? You've been basically telling me you're better than me for 14 years. Okay? That's the problem. When a church functions like we are perfect, we have all the answers, we are right, and, all that, and, and yet we're going to deny the fact that we struggle, that we get angry, that we fail, that sometimes we lie, we lose our tempers, we get selfish, we get self-centered, we mistreat each other as our parenting sometimes, we fail as parents, we fail as moms and dads, we fail as husbands and wives, we fail. In Listen, church is a mess. That's exactly how God wants it to be. The problem at Ephesus wasn't the fact that they weren't dealing with their sin. The problem was they had all kinds of sin and were acting like they didn't have any. And they were arguing on stuff that didn't make a hill of beans a difference to eternity. And so this was the problem. So God has prescribed leadership in harmony with the way he created us. That's what he's done. So what I think we need to do with a passage like this is walk through what God actually says then we need to be honest about why we struggle with it. And finally, we need to look at what happens if we actually trust and believe and obey and apply it in our lives, both individually and corporately. So let's break it down. So number one, what God's Word actually says. Now, before we do that, as I've said already a bunch of times, this passage scares me. It straight up scares me. It is a difficult passage. It is one that you can step on landmines, you can misspeak, you can make a mess of it, you can confuse people or potentially hurt people, especially our young people. You can send them on a wrong trajectory, and that is not my desire. But you know what? God's Word gives us hope even in that as we come to 1 Timothy. On my Bible at home that I do my daily devotions in, I have a passage of Scripture engraved on the cover of the Bible, and it's Psalm 119.18, in which the psalmist says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. You see, we need to be encouraged that as we come to the Bible, if we say, oh God, I'm going to read your word and I need you to show me you, God will. And so what I've started to get in the habit of doing, my father passed this on to me, is every time I open God's word to try and help me from just reading it and not thinking about it, but to really get involved in it, I say, Lord, I pray this little prayer. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. Even 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. And then if you get even more scared and you go, but yeah, but Pastor Steve, how in the world am I supposed to read passages like this and understand it? Well, listen to the words of Jesus. In John chapter 16, Verses 13 to 15, Jesus speaking to his disciples said this, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. See the promise here. Jesus is saying when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will guide you into what you need to know in his word. Now, I want you to see something, even because this is previews of coming attractions. I want you to see submission even here in the Trinity. Notice what Jesus says. The spirit of truth will come. He will guide you into all the truth. But notice this. For he will not speak on his own authority. Wait a second. That's God the Spirit. He's co-equal with God the Son and God the Father. And yet, Jesus says the Spirit never speaks of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he speaks. In other words, Whatever God the Father, God the Son tells him, he speaks. Notice he says, he will glorify me. Jesus is saying, his spirit will glorify him. 
for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now notice what Jesus says. All that the Father has is mine, which means the Father must have given it to Jesus. So God the Father is equal with God the Son, who is equal with God the Spirit, and yet there's submission in the Trinity. And he says, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So we can be confident as we come to passages like this that God's Holy Spirit will guide us and direct us. And then finally, in 2 Timothy, 2, uh, 2 Timothy 3, sorry, 16 and 17, Paul reminds Timothy again, all Scripture is breathed out by God, even passages like 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. And they are profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, that's the man and woman of God, may be complete and equipped for every good work. So we can be confident as we come to this passage that God, through His Word, through His Spirit, and because His Word is alive, will help us know exactly what we're supposed to do with this passage. All right? So in verse 11, I want you to notice how the topic changes. All right? In verses 1 through 10, it's been about the gospel, praying the gospel out into the community, praying for all people, knowing that God's will is to save people from all tribes and people and ethnicities and color and all these things and all that kind of stuff. And But in these shifts, he shifts from prayer to leadership. And that leadership is going to take place all through 11 to 15 with the ladies. And then all of chapter 3, he's going to get into it with the guys. Okay? And this is important because the subject matter in this entire, entire letter is really twofold. One is how are we supposed to act in church? Okay, remember 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 16. I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but I am writing these to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So when you come to church as a man or a woman, moms and dads, when you talk to your children, your teenagers, your young adult sons and daughters, have you ever had the conversation? This is how God expects us to behave in church. Have you ever had that conversation? This is how God expects us to behave in church. Guys, that's not legalism. Remember I told you what legalism is. Legalism is thinking you can earn your salvation. Legalism is thinking you've got to do stuff to keep your salvation. And legalism is thinking that when you do stuff that other people don't do, you're better than them. That's legalism. The challenge to be like Christ is right there. How one ought to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. But the issue is leadership. That's the central concern. Because the first is not going to happen. You're not going to have a good church if you don't have good leadership. That's just reality. If you've got faulty leadership in church, you will always end up having a faulty church. That's just the pattern. You see it over and over and over again in the New Testament. And that's what you're going to see all through, th through here. But before I even get into this passage, and maybe this has all been a setup for next week, I want to first focus in what men and women have in common, not what we have indifferent. Because often I find when pastors come to pa passages like this, when we want to talk about the roles of men and women, we make a big deal of men are supposed to do this and women are supposed to do this. And, I'll, and it becomes competitive. It becomes adversarial. It becomes something like winners and losers. And that is not the gospel. That is not the church. That's not how a family of God is supposed to function. So let's first find out what we share in common as men and women. 
All right. Number one. And again, if you take notes, I would write this down and I would remind yourselves of this a lot. And if you are parents, I would remind your children of this. Okay, we are all created in God's image. Men and women equally. We are all created in God's image in Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Every man and woman is created in the image of God. Every one of you displays the image of God. And it's not based on your appearance. It's based on the fact of who your creator is. In fact, if I can get on my soapbox and get this off my chest, because I love Newfoundland. I, I, love, Newf I love its beauty. I love its ruggedness. I love the icebergs and the cliffs. I love the majestic trees. I love the coves and the beaches and the birds that sing and the brooks and the lakes and all of these things. They're amazing. But listen to me. We need to get away. You will never see God in any creation like you will in the faces of human beings. You can look at the most beautiful sunset and you will never see God the way you see God in the eyes and mouth and nose and face of his precious children. Listen, in, with God, it's not just a kid's song. In the church, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. That's not a cliche. That's not a little kid's song. That's reality. And let me go even a step further. A child with Down syndrome, a little baby with spina bifida, more displays the image and glory of God than the sweetest birds that sing and the brook that ripples. An Alzheimer's patient who lays in bed and his eyes are bare more displays the image of God than the sweetest breeze that blows through the blueberry bushes on the side of Signal Hill. I don't want us to lose sight of that. You want to see God? Look into the faces of people, men and women, men and women. Enjoy his creation, but don't elevate nature above the pinnacle of his creation, which is man and woman built and made in his image. So all men and women are made in the image of God. Secondly, though, as you saw in the video, we are all guilty of sin. Men and women. All men and women are guilty of sin. Paul says in Romans 3.23, for there is no distinction. Now, remember I said about the principle of harmony? The Bible can't say one thing somewhere and say something somewhere else. Here Paul says, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are all made in God's image, but we're all guilty of sin. Men and women alike. Men and women. And when Paul talks about in our passage that she was deceived first and she became a transgressor and Adam was not deceived, that has nothing to do about value or the idea of intrinsic order. He's bringing out the reality of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And we'll explain that next Sunday. Because we are all guilty of sin. Thirdly, we are all called to respond to the gospel. Every one of us. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. 
It doesn't matter your color. It doesn't matter your social standing. It doesn't matter your culture. It doesn't matter anything about you. We are all called. 1 Timothy 2, 3. For this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. What is? He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor. All you who labor. And there were men and women present. All you who labor, and I will give you rest. So men... Women, brothers, sisters, ladies, gentlemen, we are all made created in God's image. We are all guilty of sin. We are all called to respond to the gospel. Now, when we do, men and women in the church, all God's people, male and female, are joint heirs with Christ. Let's never confuse that. We are all joint heirs with Christ. Heaven is not a tiered system. Heaven is not going to be a place where all the dudes go and hang out here. And all the ladies get together and hang up. There's not going to be a service with Jesus for the guys and then a service for Jesus with Jesus for the girls. That's not how heaven works. We are all joint heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Every man and woman in here who is a child of God is a joint heir with every brother in here and every sister in here. And we are going to be with Christ. And therefore, every man and woman in this room, we all reign with Christ. We all will reign with Christ. Revelation 22, 3 to 5. And his servants will worship him. And that means men and women. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I want you to wrap your heads around that, all right? In the craziness of our Western civilization, if I can quote an old Southern gospel song, I've read the back of the book and we win, all right? God is going to be glorified and we get to rule and reign with him forever, men and women. Now, let's get practical. Every man and woman in this room, we are all called to make disciples. That is not a man's job or a woman's job. That's Christian's job. That's what we do as sons and daughters of God. We are all called to make disciples. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, some of you might say, yeah, but Pastor Steve, he's only talking to the 11 disciples. Wrong. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, who tells us about this event, there were 500 people on the hillside when Jesus says this, and they were comprised of men and women. 500 people are there when Jesus says, all authority is given unto me, and go and make disciples of all nations. Now, ladies, look at this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is something that men and women do. Men and women do that. And then we are all baptized in the same spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. So it doesn't matter your gender. We were all baptized into the body of Christ, which means every man and woman here, we're all a part of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God is appointed in the church. Now get this as a way to understand 1 Timothy. God 
has appointed. After just saying you're all part of the body, men and women, then God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Then Now, guys, do you really think he means now first is apostles? They're the best. And then, you know, then I picked out the, the ones who came in second are the prophets. As if it's a race, like in there's first, second, third. That's not what he's doing. He's just giving you a list in order of how they appeared and how God used them. All right. Then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating and various kinds of tongue. And then he asked the question, are all apostles? Of course not. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Now, I love this, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a more excellent way, which, by the way, leads right into 1 Corinthians 13, which is the true love chapter of the church, not of weddings. It's of the church. When, we get the ver- if when you get chapter 12, you run to chapter 13. When you embrace chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, you will be 1 Corinthians 14, which is the church doing all things decently and in order. And then we are called, all of us, to exhort, encourage, and admonish Ready for this, men and women? Teach each other. I know what you're saying. You're going, like, Pastor Steve, like, I thought you were going to really go tell us how what men are supposed to do and what women are supposed to do today. And all you're telling us, man, is all the things we, we do together. Yeah, because it's in the Bible. Colossians chapter 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of God dwell in you, plural, richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual thongs with th- songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So that means men and women are supposed to get together and we're supposed to admonish each other and we're supposed to sing songs together and share our favorite hymns and have spiritual songs with thankfulness and we're supposed to teach each other and all of the We're supposed to do this together as men and women. And finally... And this is where I was headed. We are all saved into Christ as one church. And this is why I wanted to give you this passage, because this is the most controversial of the passage passages when we deal with. Maybe let me deal with the elephant in the room. Should only men be pastors or should women be pastors? Who is supposed to lead the church? That's what First Timothy 2, 11 to 15 is all about. Now, if you land on. No, God has only called some men, not all men, some men to be pastors. And he has not called women to be pastors. Then you will see Galatians 3, 23 to 29 very differently than some who say, no, God has called both men and women to be pastors and both men and women can lead the church. I've been making a case that there's a lot of things that men and women are supposed to do. A lot of things that men and women have in common. A lot of things we are supposed to do together. But I would submit that 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15, lays a clear foundation of roles for men and women. See, Paul says, now before faith came. So what he really means, if you want to think in terms, before Jesus came, whenever you see that before faith came, before Jesus came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. What Paul is saying is this, before Jesus came, all we had was the law. And what was the law good for? To tell us we don't measure up, okay? We we were told you cannot keep all the rules. You're never going to be good enough, no matter how hard you try. But notice this, 
we were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Here's the verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, depending on how you want to interpret the Bible, some people look at that and say, see, no more male and female. Therefore, God doesn't have any design anymore. Whoever wants to do whatever, you're able to do it. But when you really read the whole passage, you realize, but that's, wait a second, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about salvation. So when you put in here where faith came, Christ came, so now there is neither Jew nor Greek in regards to the gospel. The gospel is colorblind. It's ethnic blind. The gospel, there's neither slave nor free. It doesn't matter if you are a slave. It doesn't matter if you're a free person. You need the gospel. There is no male or female. The gospel is not just for men. The gospel is not just for women. The gospel is for everybody. And that's what Paul is saying. So we need to see, as men and women of the church, we are all created in God's image. We're all guilty of sin. We all are called to respond to the gospel. We're all joint heirs with Christ if you have found Jesus. We are all going to reign with Christ. We are all called to make disciples. We're all baptized in the one spirit. We're all part of the body of Christ. We are all called to exhort and encourage and admonish and teach one another. And we are all saved into Christ as one church. You need to know all of that. And I've tried to lay all that foundation so I can finish this passage next week and get into the nitty gritty of it. With all of that in mind is why you need to realize in verse 11a, Paul says a woman should learn in quietness. Well, right now already you should be triggered to something and go, wait a second. So he can't mean that women are less or that women are not to be involved because you've just laid out all the parts of the Bible where we're, we're equal. And then he says a woman should learn in, quite in all submissiveness. So he can't mean submissiveness like, you know, the men get to stand up and rock and rule and the women just are belittled. And that's not at all what, what he's saying. And when I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man... That cannot mean that we don't teach each other and we don't admonish one another and we don't exhort one another because we've already seen commands to do it. But she is to be in quietness. So already I hope I have pricked your curiosity enough to come back next week and hopefully I'll get a lot further. But as we conclude, I just want to ask you this. Do you realize you're created in the image of God? And it doesn't matter what you look like or where you've come from or who your parents are or who they're not or how good you think you are at something or how well-liked you are. God created you. He loves you. Men and women, you are special because you're His. And yet, do you all realize we are guilty of sin? I've said it before, I'll say it again. There's none of us 
so bad that we can't come to God and there's none of us so good that we don't need to come to God. And you know what? We are all called to respond. But I ask you over the next seven days as God gives it to us, as we come back to this passage, would you ask the Lord to help you to come back with an appetite rich and ready to say, Lord, teach me whatever your roles are. Just remember that video. I'll post that video on our church's Facebook page. So maybe you can watch it again as you saw the war that went on. I mean, there's a couple of great lines in that when she says, Adam, the apple's still in your neck. Does that not stick out to you? You know, and you, you see the interplay of what happened. But I want you to know this as we close. Submission was created by God before sin ever entered the world. Submission is not a result of sin. Submission has been corrupted by sin. And so next week, we're going to walk through the passage, and I trust rejoice in what God has for us. But I pray that if you are having issues with, does God? See, a lot of people in church, and our small group, you've dealt with this. A lot of people will say, I know God loves me. I just don't know if he likes me. No, God adores you. He sings over you. You're his son and his daughter. And if you haven't been saved, he wants you to be. And we're going to sing about that as we go our separate ways on this Sunday in June. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to really, Lord, set up a passage of Scripture. I thank you that you have walked us through this. Lord, I know this is kind of more heavy lifting. Lord, even in my own life, I've been tempted to take an easier path. Lord, I don't want anybody to think that I don't love them or I'm against someone. It's not my desire. Lord, I want to love you and pursue you and follow you and your word no matter where it takes us. And so, Father God, I pray that something's been said today that people can take with them no matter what the situation they found themselves in this week, whether they have been in the depths of despair and bondage or whether they've just had a wonderful week where everything clicked. I pray, too, that everyone would realize that how we see our roles and our responsibility, how men see what God has called us to do and women see what God has called them to do and what we are to do together as men and women, as the sons and daughters of God, when painted beautifully is a kaleidoscope of beauty that the world will be fascinated by. And I pray that we will desperately pursue it and look for it. Lord, I pray that as I preach the rest of this over the next few weeks and then we get into dealing with what you have called men to do and all these different things, that there will never be an attitude of pride or condescension or an attitude that we're right and everybody else is wrong. Lord, that is not the desire. The goal and the desire is to pursue you. And I pray that we will confidently and boldly do that. In Jesus' name, amen.